Radio Derb is on the air. Welcome, listeners. That was a blues guitar version of Haydn's Derbyshire March Number no. 2. And this is your sturdily genial host, John Derbyshire, with commentary on the week's news. The news this week was dominated by politics. On Tuesday, there were nationwide elections for state and local offices. Wednesday evening, we got the third GOP presidential candidate debate in Florida. There was a concurrent speech, also in Florida, by former President Donald Trump. And there were developments in the New York show trial of Trump, which is, of course, an entirely political event. Nothing to do with law or justice. That's been a lot of politics. A bit too much for my stomach, to tell the truth. I shall do my best with it, though. So, here goes. First, the results from Tuesday's state and local elections. Clearly disappointing for Republicans, said the Washington Post and even discounting for the post being left liberal, it's hard to argue with their judgment there. The biggest disappointments were in Virginia, where the GOP lost the lower house of the state legislature and failed to capture the upper house, and then Kentucky, where Daniel Cameron, that state's first black attorney general, failed to defeat the incumbent Democrat for governor. That Kentucky incumbent Democrat actually increased his vote lead over the one in his 2019 victory. It's a bit odd that the GOP should suffer these disappointing results when, by all national polls, the nation's democratic president and administration are unpopular, and there is widespread public dissatisfaction on issues like the cost of living, uncontrolled mass immigration and federal spending. It's especially odd in a red state like Kentucky. Atlantic Magazine this week actually called Kentucky Deep Red. The abortion issue is taking a lot of the blame. That Kentucky challenger, Daniel Cameron, who lost to the incumbent Democrat, had a strong anti-abortion record. For those of us who couldn't care less one way or the other about abortion, and who believe that on a list of deal-breaker issues for a rational voter... Abortion should rank around number 47. It is annoying that this issue has such prominence in our political life. Plainly, though, a lot of Americans care much more than we do, either on one side or the other, and they have every right to vote accordingly. Since the Dobbs decision two years ago put the matter in the hands of state legislatures, where it properly belongs, 
abortion has become a major issue in state and local elections. Will it go on being that way? Or shall we, after a couple more years, shall we reach an equilibrium where all 50 states have settled the issue, each to the general satisfaction of its citizens? Or will one or other of the activist sides somehow raise it to a subject for federal legislation? Time will tell. Wherever it goes, we of the couldn't-care-less demographic will just have to deal with it. Meanwhile, a minority of voters would like a total ban on abortion. At the extreme, even in cases of rape or incest. While another minority want abortion without limits. At the extreme up to and even after birth. The majority of Americans, like me, think abortion should be lawful up to some reasonable point in pregnancy. Twelve or fifteen weeks sounds about right. The moderate majority dislike the first minority view, the ones who want a total ban, more than they dislike the second, no limits at all. A charitable interpretation of this is that the majority see it as an issue of personal liberty, a cherished value for Americans. A less charitable explanation might be that anti-abortion activists match too easily to the stereotype puritanical religious scold, a stock villain in the modern American imagination, while pro-abortion activists don't summon up anything much from folklore. Whatever the explanation, the fact that the moderate majority dislike anti-abortion activists more than they dislike pro-abortion activists is an issue for Republicans, as anti-abortion activists are invariably Republican. A candidate known to be strongly anti-abortion will lose more of the moderate middle than one who's strongly pro-abortion. So there are more lost Republican votes in the issue than lost Democrat ones. That's the state of affairs we currently have to deal with, while of course exerting whatever powers of persuasion we have in favour of the moderate majority view. I think there's more to Tuesday disappointments than the abortion issue, though. The blogger Z-Man nailed it in a post on Wednesday, quote, the Republicans have been vexed by one primary complaint for close to a decade. The people they want to swindle into voting for them do not like them very much. In fact, they went so far as to vote for the one guy the party said was off limits in 2016, 
Donald Trump. Despite the party's best efforts to rid themselves of this troublesome man, the rank-and-file voters still prefer him over whatever the party offers as an alternative. End quote. I think that's a key insight. Democrat voters like their party more than Republican voters like theirs. It's true for me. I've been a reliable Republican voter for as long as I've been a citizen. But I don't much like the Republican Party. It's just the lesser of two evils. It's the more tolerable wing of the Uni Party. Here's a little thought experiment you might try. Imagine a Democrat equivalent of Donald Trump. A noisy outsider running for president on the Democratic Party ticket. Detested by the party establishment. Not to mention the media and the academy and so on. But triumphing over all the party regulars. Can you imagine that? I can't. Democrats like their party regulars. Republicans don't much like theirs. Tuesday's news wasn't all bad for Republicans. One particularly bright spot was right here on Long Island, where stands Radio Derb's magnificent state-of-the-art recording studio. Just a reminder of the terminology... Long Island is an actual geographical island, stretching 120 miles from west to east. The western 13% of it, however, is part of New York City. It's the boroughs of Brooklyn and Queens, looking further west across the waters to the rest of the city. In common usage... Unless the speaker is being obviously and explicitly geographical, the phrase Long Island refers to the other 87% of the actual physical island. The inner suburban county of Nassau occupies 20 of those 87% and Suffolk County occupies the rest. If someone tells you he lives in Long Island, it's highly unlikely that he's a New York City resident. Almost certainly, he lives in Nassau or Suffolk. If he's from Brooklyn or Queens, he'll say he lives in New York City. Your genial Radio Derb host lives in Suffolk County, just over the border from Nassau. This part of Suffolk is outer suburban. Further out east, Suffolk is more spacious and rural. There are working farms, both corn and horn. And there are wineries and a busy fishing industry. So that's the setting. What happened to Long Island, those two big 
suburban and rural counties what happened to them in Tuesday's elections. We went solid Republican, that's what. Quote from Tuesday's New York Post, quote, Republicans painted Long Island completely red Tuesday night, with the party's candidate, Ed Romaine, winning a landslide victory against Democrat David Cologne to become Suffolk County Executive. The GOP now occupies all the countrywide seats in Nassau and Suffolk counties. Both county executive seats the district attorney and comptroller's offices, as well as all four congressional seats. Romaine sailed to victory with 56% of the vote, beating Cologne by more than 26,000 votes. Long-time analysts of Long Island politics said they could recall only one brief period in the last 60 years when the GOP was this dominant, end quote. Ed Romaine is our first Republican county executive for 20 years. Analysts tell us that the Biden administration's open borders policy was a factor. New York City Mayor Eric Adams hasn't succeeded in dumping any big number of his illegal aliens on us, here in Nassau and Suffolk. But suburban folk closely watch what's happening in the big city, and they know he would like to. Mayor Adams is a Democrat. So is Kathy Hochul, New York State's governor. So, of course, is President Biden. The stupendous mess they've made with their open borders and sanctuary city lunacy is all too visible this close to New York City, and it's turned off a lot of Democrats. That, and the cost of living in a place that's already pricey, and Long Island Republicans being more moderate on abortion than their Bible Belt colleagues, that all did the trick. I suspect although it hasn't been much talked about, I suspect that October 7th was also a factor. The proportion of Jews here is a lot higher than the USA average. The antics of the congressional squad and Joe Biden's declaration of war on Islamophobia can't have gone down well with them. And then Wednesday's GOP candidates debate. This was the third of these debates. Watching the first one back in August, I recorded the following, quote, Watching that televised debate for the GOP candidates last week, for a moment I had the thought that I was watching something irrelevant. The acting out of some formal ritual that no longer has any actual significance, from which nothing of any consequence will follow. End quote. I've gotten the same vibe from debates numbers two and three. 
In the case of this one, though, number three, the vibe was somewhat muted. The reason for that is that this one was less of a circus than the previous two. And the reason for that is that there were only five candidates on stage, as against eight in the first debate and seven in the second. My overall impression was that these five candidates played the same roles as before, but amplified. DeSantis was even more the normal guy. Haley even more the neocon world saver. Christie even more the light relief. Scott even more the likeable no-hoper. Ramaswamy even more the obnoxious teenager. As before, I pulled up a transcript and keyed Control-F on I-M-M-I-G-R. Only two hits, down from six in the last debate. One of the two was a debate moderator asking a question about Venezuela. Nothing to, directly to do with immigration. The second was Ron DeSantis replying to a question about, guess what, abortion. He told an uplifting story about a Florida Supreme Court judge that he'd appointed. The judge was an immigrant from Jamaica. Her mother, who was poor, had contemplated abortion, but decided against it. Uh-huh. OK, Governor, way to skip around the abortion question. We get that you're disposed against abortion. What we want to know is, if elected president, will you try for federal legislation on abortion? Or will you leave it with the states, where Dobbs put it and where it belongs? Having struck out with Control-F on I-M-M-I-G-R, I fell back on Control-F-B-O-R-D-E-R. That was more fruitful. 39 hits, only four of them from moderators. Of the 35 mentions by candidates, Senator Tim Scott was out ahead with 11. DeSantis and Ramaswamy, 8 each. Haley and Christie, 4 each. Here are some representative samples, with occasional comments from me. Number one, DeSantis. Quote, the elites don't care that your family's less secure because of the open border. That's allowed drugs and even terrorists to come into this country. Number two, DeSantis again. Quote, Trump should explain why he didn't have Mexico pay for the border wall. End quote. My comment? Yes, he really should. Number three, Haley. Quote, You've got an open border where terrorists can come through and we've got wars happening all over us and there are dangers around us. End quote. My comment? 
wars happening all over us? Funny, I haven't noticed any happening over me. Number four, Ramaswamy. Quote, I would tell Bibi Netanyahu to smoke those terrorists on his southern border. And then I'll tell him, as President of the United States, I'll be smoking the terrorists on our southern border. End quote. My comment? I want someone with serious executive government experience in the White House, which pretty much rules out Ramaswamy. But, I have to admit, I can't help liking the guy. Number five. Scott, quote, We are not going to send your sons and daughters to Ukraine. I am going to send troops to our southern border. Number six, Scott again, quote, For $10 billion we could close our southern border. Number seven, and again, quote, with a hundred thousand overdose deaths in our country and the seventy thousand that is directly linked to fentanyl, we have to deal with our ports of entry and deal with our southern border. End quote. My comment Good to hear ports of entry mentioned. It's not just the border. Number eight, Christie. Quote, on day one, I would sign an executive order that would send the National Guard to partner with Customs and Border Patrol, both at ports of entry and at the open ports of our border. Customs and Border Patrol agents are overwhelmed. Number nine, DeSantis yet again. Quote, I am going to deport people who come illegally. And I'm even going to build the border wall and have Mexico pay for it, like Donald Trump promised. How are you going to do it? Yeah, Mexico's not going to fork over money. We're going to impose fees on the remittances that foreign workers send to foreign countries. Number 10. Haley again. Quote, we'll put 25,000 more Border Patrol and ICE agents on the ground and let them do their job. Number 11. Ramaswamy again. Quote, what we need to do is stop using our military to protect someone else's border halfway around the world when we're short right here at home. Get serious about protecting this border. And then the other thing that hasn't been discussed is the northern border. I'm the only candidate on the stage, as far as I'm aware, who has actually visited the northern border. End quote. My comment? Good to hear a mention of the northern border. So, some good feisty talk there from the candidates. If any of these people were to make it to the White House... I imagine we'd get some good, feisty executive orders, as we did when Trump made it in 2017. Shall we get any legislation, though? This is the Republican Party, remember? The party of Mitch McConnell and Lindsey Graham, 
the party that elevated Paul Ryan, that dumped Jeff Sessions and that sidelined Chris Kobach and Steve King. I tried a couple more control F's. I did control F birthright and control F E verify. No hits on either. Leaving aside world saver Nikki Haley, who, for all our sakes, should be kept as far away as possible from the nuclear football, leaving Haley aside, this was not a bad cast of candidates. Perhaps one or two of them could beat the Democrats next year. The question is, though, can any of them beat the Republican Party? While those five GOP candidates were debating in Miami, Donald Trump was holding a rally there. The rally was actually in Hialeah, a working-class suburb of Miami that is 95% Hispanic. Almost all of these Hispanics are of Cuban extraction, and a high proportion are Trump fans. There just seems to be something about having lived in Cuba or having family members who lived there that makes you a Trump fan. Trump's rally was a big success. He spoke for an hour and 20 minutes, often rambling inconsequentially, as he often does, but keeping the crowd's enthusiasm alight. He came out particularly strong on illegal immigration. Rather than tell you second-hand what he said, I'll give you the man himself. Here is three minutes of Donald Trump at Hialeah. On day one, I will stop the invasion of our southern border. We will stop it. One point, think of this. 1.5 million people, in my opinion, are coming in every two months. I think the number is going to end up being not 3 million people, not 5, not 7, not 10 that you hear. The real number, you know, talking about gotaways. You know what the gotaways are? Many, many times the ones they catch. I think the number is going to be more than 15 million people, which is larger than New York State. Thank you. Under Biden, the United States has become the dumping ground of the world. Inmates are being emptied out of their prisons, insane asylums and mental institutions, and they're pouring into the United States. Think of it. Empty, insane asylums. That's a bad word. My people say, please don't use those words, sir. Why? Because it's so nasty. Well, that's true. Now, an insane asylum is Silence of the Lambs. Anybody ever hear of Hannibal Lecter? He was a nice fellow, but that's what's coming into our country right now. And mental institutions, which is a number of degrees below that. And prisons and jails is a little difference. And they're coming in at levels never seen before, probably never seen before in any country. There's never been anything like this. Our country is being invaded. This is an invasion. It's an invasion. A few months ago, right here in Florida, a sadistic illegal alien in Lee County was charged with kidnapping a woman from a nightclub, dragging her into the woods, beating her, raping her, and leaving her with what were called 
bone chilling injuries so bad that she's still trying to recover and she's still very close to death. In Alabama, a previously deported illegal alien was charged with savagely murdering, just absolutely murdering a 34 year old woman and her 14 year old son before dismembering their bodies while holding captive the woman's 12 year old daughter who watched. This is the kind of monstrosity you'd expect from terrorists in the Middle East, but it's happening right here because of crooked Joe Biden. It's right here, Florida, in our country, all over our country. On day one, I will terminate every open borders policy of the Biden administration, and we will begin the largest domestic deportation operation in American history. So sad we even have to talk about this. Wouldn't it be great if we could just talk about fixing our country, making it great without having to do all this? But we have no choice. As I said, some rambling and not always coherent. Is there actually a difference between insane asylums and mental institutions? The latter, according to Trump, a couple of degrees below them. Beats me. The crowd liked it. That's the main thing. It might not be just empty bluster, either. You may remember Radio Derb reporting to you a few months ago that there had been a small flurry of news stories, The Economist, The New York Times, telling us that, quote, Trump and his people today with think tanks like the Heritage Foundation and the America First Policy Institute in the lead, are making sure that a second Trump term will hit the ground running. Policies and policymakers all set to go. End quote. The premise there was that Trump and his people had entered 2017 totally unprepared for office, and his term had suffered accordingly. They determined not to repeat that mistake. Well, the BBC News website last Sunday posted yet another of those what a Donald Trump second term would look like prognostications. That was the actual title what a Donald Trump second term would look like. Sample quote. For those wondering what Mr. Trump intends to do if American voters send him back to the White House in 12 months, the former president is laying it all out. It's there in bite-sized chunks on his campaign website. It's heard at his rally speeches and it's documented by people he has entrusted to work on his second-term preparations. They call the plan Agenda 47, a reference to Mr. Trump becoming America's 47th president if he wins. End quote. 
So, presumably, that's what we were hearing from Trump there in Hialeah Wednesday evening. Some nuggets from Agenda 47. Trump sounds like he's blowing out hot air, the same way he sounded back in 2016. This time, though, there is some serious preparation behind it. So say the BBC, the New York Times and The Economist. I hope they're right. All that, of course, assumes that Donald Trump is free to campaign next year. And, if he campaigns and is elected, is free to perform the duties of chief executive. Our ruling class seems determined to ensure that neither is the case. A prime exhibit here is the trial currently being conducted in New York City, supposedly over Trump having inflated the value of his properties for financial advantage. The remarkable thing about this trial is how brazen it is. There is none of the rigour and solemnity of a proper judicial proceeding. The judge, there is no jury, I don't understand why, the judge is a clown, grinning inanely and wise-cracking as court business proceeds. Frequently present in the public section of the courtroom is New York State Attorney General Letitia James, gloating at the fruition of her four-year vendetta against Trump and his family, fulfilling a promise she made when campaigning for the AG position back in 2018. Quote from the Washington Post, December 19th of that year, quote, During the campaign, James, a Democrat, said she intends to aggressively investigate Trump's business and finances. On the night of her victory, she stood in front of supporters in Brooklyn and all but declared a war against Trump. In a quote, I will be shining a bright light into every dark corner of his real estate dealings and every dealing, demanding truthfulness at every turn. End in a quote. End quote. Note that the AG intended to aggressively investigate. If there had been any civil or criminal complaint against Trump, the Post doesn't mention it. This seems to me very shocking. If there's a complaint, the AG should, of course, investigate it. But can she really aggressively investigate when there's no complaint? On what grounds? That she heard a rumour? Had a dream? Read it in her horoscope? But I'm just revealing my own naivety here. Reading further down that Washington Post article, I come to this, quote, 
James's bluntness about Trump is not unheard of. As Democratic and Republican state attorneys general become more partisan and use their office to file lawsuits against the other party, said Paul Nolet, a Marquette University political science professor. Texas Governor Greg Abbott, a Republican, for example, often joked that when he was Attorney General, he would get up in the morning, sue President Barack Obama, and go home. End quote. So, a state Attorney General doesn't even have to pretend to initiate litigation impartially. He can be as partial as he pleases. So much for the dignity of the law. Letitia James is a particularly repulsive specimen of the politicised state attorney general, but she is not at all unique, if the Washington Post can be believed. Here's a question for someone with better research skills than I have. We have two instances of Letitia James aggressively investigating people and enterprises against whom, so far as I know, no formal complaint has been lodged. The two instances we have are, number one, Donald Trump and his family and businesses, and number two, vide.com. So, my question... Does Letitia James have any aggressive investigations ongoing against people or organisations that are not active on the political right? Does she have anything ongoing against Black Lives Matter? Against Bill de Blasio? The Southern Poverty Law Centre? Bernie Sanders? To ask the question is to answer it. Is there no remedy for this? Are our property and our very liberty held only at the whim of powerful state officials? Sure, Trump will appeal whatever sentence this jeering, capering judge awards him. How long will that take, though? And how much will it have cost? This is nothing like the law, as I have always supposed it to be. Earlier this week, after Trump had vented about the brazen unfairness of the process he is being dragged through, Judge Engoron stopped sniggering for long enough to tell Trump's lawyers they should control their client, adding that, quote, This is not a political rally, end quote. As Michael Goodwin observed in Tuesday's New York Post, quote from him, He's right. It's a political trial, not a rally. And now, our closing miscellany of brief items. Imprimis. Still in the legal sphere, there may be some hope for a fairer future. 
Over in London, England, two artificial intelligence bots have negotiated a contract. This was accomplished at a firm named Luminance, described as a law-tech firm, whatever that means. Quote, The AIs went back and forth over the details of a real non-disclosure agreement between the company and ProSapient, one of Luminance's clients. The contract was finalised within minutes, and the only time a human was required was to add their signature. End quote. How soon can we get one of those AI bots elected New York State Attorney General? Can't be soon enough for me. Item. I am devastated to learn that I have been pronouncing Barbara Streisand's name all wrong since, uh, since when? The Lyndon Johnson administration, I think? This came to light when the lady overheard Siri, who is the computerised assistant in an Apple smartphone, she heard Siri render her name as Streisand with the second alveolar fricative voiced. It should be unvoiced. Stry-sand. Miss Streisand was so upset by this, she called Apple CEO Tim Cook to complain. Mr Cook, of course, hastened to correct Siri's pronunciation. Yo, Tim, it's Derbyshire, not Derbyshire. Can you fix that, please? Item. Vladimir Putin has decided that he will be a candidate in Russia's presidential election next March, running for re-election. Oh, that should be a real nail-biter. They'll be glued to their TV sets all over Russia. Item. Tomorrow, Saturday, is Remembrance Day in the UK, when Britons remember those who died in the line of military duty. It's a solemn occasion which Britons take seriously. Quote from me, writing about this 22 years ago, before I got naturalised. Quote, I think every country reserves a special place in the collective memory for her bloodiest war. For the United States, that was the Civil War, which killed more Americans from a smaller population than all other wars since combined. For us English, the Great War was World War I. And to this day we wear poppies in our lapels on Remembrance Day. The Flanders poppy was a symbol of all those who died on the Western Front in 1914 to 1918, immortalised in the poem by John McRae, who was actually a Canadian. In her quote, 
In Flanders fields the poppies blow Between the crosses, row on row That mark our place. End in a quote. End quote. However, the Muslims who have flooded into Britain this past 50 years and who now occupy entire towns will be having a mass demonstration against Israel in central London tomorrow in defiance of legacy Brits conducting themselves in solemn remembrance of their ancestors' courage and sacrifices. There may be counter-demonstrations by legacy British patriots, but if there are, the police will arrest them for disturbing public order, while smiling benignly on the shrieking Muslims. That's how bad things are over there now. I weep for the country of my birth. Item. Reading the news about our universities taking the side of Hamas after October 7th, I was a bit surprised to see that the president of Harvard University is a black woman. I really shouldn't have been. Black women zoomed to the top of the status ranks when I wasn't paying attention. Educated black women are in terrific demand. Every organisation wants one. President of Harvard? Oh, definitely. Got to be a black woman. In February 2020, on the campaign trail, Joe Biden promised that if, as president, he got the opportunity to nominate a Supreme Court justice, he would nominate a black woman. He accordingly did so. I don't want to be a wet blanket, but uh, isn't there an issue of supply and demand here? As the demand for black women in prestigious positions soars heavenwards, might the supply run out? I'm only asking. Item. Tuesday this week... Britain's King Charles delivered his first King's Speech at the opening of Parliament in London. King's Speech is named that way only because the King delivers it. None of the words or thoughts in it are his. The majority party in Parliament, the party of the government, writes the speech. The monarch just reads it. It outlines the government's legislative programme for the coming year. One item that caught my eye in this year's speech was proposed legislation to implement a gradual ban on smoking. Under the proposal, it would be illegal to sell cigarettes to anyone born after January 2009. Didn't anybody learn anything from prohibition? That's it, ladies and gents. Thank you for listening and for your emails and your support.
Next week is a tranquil pause between this week's elections and Veterans Day observances and Thanksgiving the week following. Enjoy that pause and start your preparations for Christmas and the New Year. And, fellow suburbanites, get raking those leaves. As I hope is plain from my comments earlier, I remain well disposed to Governor Ron DeSantis, and I would not mind at all if he were to become our nation's next president. My sign-out music is intended in a good-humoured spirit. I hope the Governor will accept it in that spirit. It's an old favourite of mine, the great Peter Dawson, singing words by the great Rudyard Kipling. And I just couldn't resist it. There will be more from Radio Derb next week. Try to think of something different Oh, 